following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Bible is going to open up to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52. This week, as you know, is called Passion Week or Holy Week. And if we were to go back in time in Jesus' life, here's what would have been on his calendar. Last Sunday, which is known as Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, and people praised him. They praised God, and they said, Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people praised God because they believed that The one who came mounted on a donkey was the long-awaited Messiah and Deliverer. They thought that this is the one who would finally restore their nation to her former glory. On Monday, Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem, the most holy place of the Jewish people, and began to cleanse it of its dishonest and greedy practices. They turned the house of God from a house of prayer into a place where people were being robbed blind. On Tuesday, Jesus went back into the same temple that he'd already confronted and confronted the Jewish leaders about rejecting him and ultimately rejecting God. He told them on one of the most startling claims of his ministry that he would take the kingdom of God from them and he would give it to a nation that would be faithful to him. Then on Wednesday, we would have found Jesus at Simon the leper's house being anointed by Mary with very expensive perfume. Mary's sacrificial gift set the stage for Jesus' death and burial. All the while on the side, Judas Iscariot was setting his heart to betray him. And then Thursday night, which would have been last night, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room and celebrated the Lord's Supper with them. And from there, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, which is also the place where Judas Iscariot finally betrayed him. The next hours in Jesus' life are like a fog. He goes from illegal Jewish trials before Annas and Caiaphas, and then before the religious leaders in Israel. He's sent to Roman trials before Pilate and King Herod. And at each spot, he was beaten, mocked, and whipped with the tools of the trade, which were meant for scourging and lashing a human victim. A leather belt with Ends of metal balls were attached to his back and scrapped across his back and beaten. A crown of thorns was mockingly placed upon his head. All the while, Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders spat upon him and sarcastically mocked him. At the end of it all, with the crowds crying, crucify him, Pilate begrudgingly sent him to the cross to be crucified. Now that's where we would be in the timeline of Jesus' life up to this point. Today, in Christian tradition, it's called Good Friday. It's good because it's the day in which Jesus Christ died for our sins, and we see it as good because on this day, God's love and God's mercy were revealed to us in a way like never before. It's Good Friday because it is the day when Jesus fulfilled everything that God wanted for us. And his life on earth was culminated 
by his death on the cross in our place. Now to consider this event in Jesus' life, we're going to look at Isaiah 52 and 53, and we're going to consider the suffering servant. The book of Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel because Isaiah reveals to us the good news of God's grace to his people unlike any other Old Testament book. In this book, we see how God would comfort his people, how God would rescue his people from their sin and rebellion against him. And and this good news is never more on display than in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. I know we were just standing, but would you stand with me as we read this text together? beginning with Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is the reading of God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of any of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not yet understood, they they heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. And one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and asked for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall see, shall he see and be satisfied. By his not, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you. You may be seated.
This section of scripture is the fourth song in the book of Isaiah about someone called the servant, the Lord's servant. In Isaiah chapter 42, this servant is the one in whom the Lord delights and whom the spirit of God is upon. In Isaiah verse chapter 49, he is the light of the nations and the one who will bring God's salvation to the world. In Isaiah chapter 50, he is the innocent and obedient servant whom God helps and sustains. Throughout Isaiah, like much of the Old Testament, there is a large question hanging over all of it. And the question is, when will God bring eternal salvation to his people? How will God deliver sinful and rebellious people from his judgment? When will the hope of the promised one, the promised champion, finally come? And the text that we just read tonight is the answer. It's like the finale in Isaiah's four-song symphony. While the original hearers might not have discerned who this servant was, the New Testament gives us remarkable clarity. Jesus said of himself, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. The Apostle Peter wrote about Jesus, He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore himself on our, uh, bore in himself our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like street, like straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So tonight, as we meditate on the suffering servant Jesus, we're going to draw close to the foot of the cross. And it's important that we do this. Some have written that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Others have said that we should live as if Jesus died yesterday and rose again today. And we should always see ourselves at the foot of Calvary. So tonight, let's just get close to the suffering servant as revealed to us in the fourth song of Isaiah's book in Isaiah 52 and 53. And the first thing you'll notice in this psalm, in this first stanza, is the paradox of the servant. You'll see this in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. The original hearers of Isaiah's prophecy would wonder, after they've read the other three songs, they would wonder, who is this servant? Tell us more about this servant. And Isaiah reveals an odd paradox about this servant at the beginning of his song. Verse 13, he writes, he is wise. He is high and lifted up and exalted, bringing to mind what they would have read in Isaiah chapter 6 about God being high and lifted up. This servant would be like God. But then notice verse 14, that his appearance would be marred beyond human appearance and his form beyond the children of mankind. In other words, he would be barely recognized because he would have been marred by a beating. He would succumb to 
some disfigurement of some sort to such a degree that no one would recognize him. Do you see the odd paradox of Isaiah's song? This godlike figure who is, who is high and lifted up and exalted like God, yet marred beyond human appearance. Then he goes on in verse 15 to give even more challenges of this paradox, that the nations of the world would be sprinkled by him or purified by him, and the kings of the earth would be silenced by him. So here is this servant of God, humble and humiliated, exalted with the power to silence the kings of the earth, ruling over all nations and purifying all nations, yet beaten beyond measure by the hands of humans. God's servant is a paradox. He doesn't fit into our nice, tidy boxes or our clean little categories. But then notice the rejection of the servant. You'll see this in the second stanza of the song, beginning in chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. You notice Isaiah asking an interesting question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? This isn't a shocking question when you just come off the paradox of the servant. I mean, what what else would they believe? I mean, this wouldn't make sense to anybody in the world that God would send this type of odd servant who is high and lifted up, yet beaten beyond measure. Those two things don't make sense. Matter of fact, you think about it for a moment. If you were to try to right all the world's wrongs of today, what kind of servant and champion would you choose? If we were to pick somebody to save the world, what kind of leader would we pick? I know what kind of leader we would pick. We'd pick a political leader. We'd pick a military hero. We'd pick a, a philosophical genius. Would you pick the type of person that was just displayed with such paradoxical characteristics that he's high and lifted up like God, yet he's beaten beyond measure? Those things don't make sense. Would you have picked a godlike figure beaten beyond recognition, one who succumbs to the whims of humans? Would you pick one who is humiliated to the point of having his face thrown in the ground and beaten beyond measure? Yet God said, this servant, this servant of paradox, is the very one that I will reveal my strength through. And you'd think, as Isaiah declares, that God is going to reveal the arm of the Lord, you would think, wouldn't you, that this is some sort of powerful, gargantuan, larger-than-life figure. Okay, now God's going to give us the picture of this gigantic servant that's going to rule over all the world, but that's not what you get, is it? In verse 2, he says, he was like a young plant. This doesn't sound like a mighty tree, does it? doesn't sound like something that you would bow down and worship. He had no form or majesty and no beauty that we would look upon him. In other words, putting it in our terms, this is not the person that would end up in GQ magazine. He would not be the one that would be the most likely to become the world's strongest man, nor would he be the most likely for us to follow. Instead, verse 3 tells us that he was despised and rejected, acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows. Someone whom men would hide their faces. And we despised him and esteemed him not. 
God's servant was rejected. He's not one that we would celebrate. He's not what the world is looking for. We're looking for power. We're looking for a particular type. Yet God's servant who doesn't fit our type is the one whom God will show his power through. The next stanza shows us this. Verse 4 through 6 is like the crescendo of this song. It's it's the moment that this song has been building for. It's in these verses that we see the substitution of the servant. You have the servant that's got some paradox. You've got a servant that's been rejected, but now you see the substitution of the servant. Now, this song is remarkably interesting. Chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 3, you can almost hear the music building. God's servant will be like unlike anyone that we would ever suspect. He is exalted, yet humiliated. He is rejected by men, but approved by God. But why? Why would God's servant be like this? Why would God's servant not be something different altogether? Why? Verses 4 through 6 tell us why. And because it's a central piece and the crescendo moment of this song, we need to slow down a bit as we navigate through verses 4 through 6. Just let the music of Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, just linger in your soul for a moment. Notice first how many personal pronouns are used. Our, us, we are used ten times in three verses. Indicating to us the reason why this exalted, humiliated, and rejected servant came and was beaten. It was for us. This exalted, Humiliated, rejected servant is the substitute in our place, condemned he stood. We're told he bore our griefs, that he carried our sorrows, that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He took upon our human flesh, was tempted just like we are in every way, yet without sin, endured the hardships of our lives on earth, and we esteemed him not. He is exalted by God, but humiliated by and for us. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. See, all those beatings were for our sins. All that humiliation was for our iniquities. Upon him was placed the judgment that we deserved so that we might have peace with God. By his wounds, the wounds of his marring beyond human semblance, we are healed. 
We are no longer diseased with our sins and our rebellion before God because Jesus died in our place. Isaiah ends this crescendo with all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. (laughs) What the original reader would hear at this point is that God's suffering servant would be the sacrifice for our sins. They would know that because of their sacrificial system where a spotless lamb was offered annually at the Passover when the priest took that lamb and offered it to God. And they'd have another year, in a sense, where they would feel like things are okay between us and God. Isaiah 53, in the servant that we're seeing, is that spotless lamb. He is the substitute. That's what you're seeing in these verses before you. That's what you're seeing and hearing in this song, in this section of the song. But you're also hearing something else. And you're also seeing something else. You're seeing your faces. We're seeing our faces. We're seeing the part that we play in this narrative and in this moment. The only thing that we bring to the salvation by which God has given us in His grace is the sin for which Christ died. Let that settle in your soul for a moment. Do you see your face in Isaiah 4, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6? Do you see your sin here? John Stott wrote, there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. For a moment, let's meditate upon that fact. Our sin, mine and yours, was so serious that it took the humiliation and the death of the exalted Son of God to deal with it. Do you see yourself at the cross? Do you see yourself with hammer in hand? And as Luther would say, nails in your pocket. But most importantly, Do you see your substitute hanging there for you? See, understanding the seriousness of our sin helps us marvel at the amazing nature of grace. For our 
transgressions or our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant was the substitute. Verses 7 through 9, the fourth stanza of Isaiah's song, shows us how the servant was our substitute. Because he shows us the death of the servant. As a lamb being led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth, which is repeated twice in the song. Indicating that the, the servant of God, the Lamb of God went willingly. The exalted one who is high and lifted up at any moment of these proceedings could have stopped and put an end to all that was happening, but he didn't. It's why the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is so amazing when he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Through his death, he took away the judgment and oppression which were hanging over us. He was cut off from the land of the living and buried in a borrowed grave. And even though he was sinless and innocent, God's servant, who had never sinned, took our sin upon himself as if it was his own and suffered and died under the wrath that we deserved. And he did it so that God's judgment and God's oppression and God's condemnation would no longer be hanging over us. And he did it willingly. No one took the Son of God's life. He gave it willingly. For me and for you, and he uttered not a word. He took the judgment and oppression for me. He took it for you. So you you might come here tonight, you might think about Christianity a little bit and Jesus and think that Jesus was in some way the innocent victim taken away against his wishes and fighting this death all the way to the moment they finally nailed him to the cross and then he succumbs. You might think that he was pulling his hands away, pulling his feet back from them, piercing him, but that would not be accurate. He willingly laid himself on those beams. He willingly gave up his life to suffer this humiliation and death for you. He's the one that determined when he would give up his spirit. He is the one who declared, it is finished. And when he said it's finished, it is finished. He's the one that dictated all the proceedings of that day because he was the willing substitute. See, here's what you must see. Your face is not merely in this song, dear friend. No, your face in that moment is before the Son of God. Your face is before him. He sees your sin. And that's why he came. He came to give his life as a ransom for us. And he willingly did it. That brings us to the last stanza of the song. Which is the plan 
and the will of God. See, you might think the beating and death of the exalted one is the plan and will of Satan. I've heard that stated among Christians. You might think it was the plan and the will of evil men. That's even talked about in the book of Acts. And we'd be partially true. It'd be partially correct. But verse 10 confronts us. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So much debate can be made. People say, this is the will of the Lord. That's the will of the Lord. You know when we know what the will of the Lord is? When the Bible says it's the will of the Lord. And guess what this tells us? The willing death of the Son of God, the exalted King, who submitted himself to be beaten beyond semblance, is the will of God. It was God's plan that he should, his son should be beaten and crushed for our sins. God planned to bring his servant to earth to save us from our sins. These verses are confronting us with something that just cannot even feel right. It almost feels as if like God loves us so much that he gave his son and willed it to be true. Doesn't even seem right. C.J. Mahaney in preaching on this passage said this, Here we encounter the love of God revealed in a most unexpected place and displayed in a most unexpected way. God the Father was ultimately responsible for the death of his Son, revealing his love for sinners like you and me. God did not spare his own son because it was the only way he could spare us and remain a holy and just God. So he crushed him. God's love for you, God's love for us, led him to crush his son. Just just meditate on that for a moment. In C.J.'s sermon on this text, he said, quoted a theologian who said that in this moment it feels as if that God loved us more than he loved his own son. Meditate on that. When you read John chapter 3, the famous words of John, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you hear? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. When you hear Jesus' words from the cross, which in my opinion are the most tragic moment of the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken 
me. Do you hear? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. I mean, these words are shocking. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's love for us led him to crush his son. What's intriguing about these verses is as you continue them, you notice it's not all that the Lord had planned and willed. Notice with me something intriguing in verse 10, that we get a glimpse to something to come after this servant's death. After the will of the Lord crushes him, notice after this servant's righteous life, after his substitutionary death, His death is not the final plan. It's not the final thing that God has planned. Notice verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him so that after he had made an offering for guilt, notice what this says. He sees his offspring and his days are prolonged. You know what Isaiah is declaring here? He's declaring that there's a day coming after the death of this servant when this servant is alive, he is, he's looking ahead to something. He's seeing the resurrection of this servant. See, in, in God's mind, in Isaiah's mind, in Isaiah's prophecy, Good Friday is good because he knows Sunday is coming. He looks past the death of this servant of God and says, yes, it's the will of the Lord to crush him, but it's the will of the Lord to raise him. Because dead men... Don't see. Dead men don't have their days prolonged. Dead men don't see the results and the effect of what their death accomplished, but this servant does. And because he is raised from the dead and he sees his offspring, notice verse 11 tells us that he made many to be accounted righteous because he bore their iniquities. Christians, do you, do you see the gospel being displayed? Do you see the fullness of what God is telling us about this servant? That God's servant bore our sins on the cross, the curse and wrath of God for us, and he did it so that we might be clothed in or accounted as righteous before God, no longer treated for our transgressions or for our iniquities. He's treating us on the basis of the righteous servant we are accounted righteous because our servant had our iniquities laid upon him let that just sink into your soul for a moment if you're a child of god a believer in christ you might wonder how does god see me how does god look upon me Maybe you think when you go to your prayer closet in the morning and you get up to pray that you think somehow God is just a little exasperated with you, just mildly impatient. Just wondering, when is this knucklehead going to show up again? You've blown it again. You might wonder, is he is he dealing with me according to my sin? Here you have it in the text in Isaiah 50. 311. He looks upon you and he sees the righteous life of his suffering servant. 
you are as secure in the presence of God as Jesus is. Because God has laid upon him your iniquity. And how much more shall we be saved by his life? God's plan and will just keeps coming to us. So as you continue, you notice he was raised from the dead. You notice that he counted us as righteous. But notice verse 12. We're told that this conquering, suffering servant, the exalted one, who was humiliated for our transgressions, makes intercession for us. I mean, just ponder where we've been. We've we've been to the foot of Calvary. We've gone to the open tomb where the grave is empty. And now we're being taken to the right hand of the ascended Lord. Where the suffering servant, the one who died for you, the one who was buried and was raised from the dead, the arm and strength of the Lord, the one who made you righteous before God. Now we're told, listen, he is thinking about you. He is praying for you right now in this very moment. In other words, you're in his heart and on his mind. Can you sense the love of God on display in Isaiah 52 and 53 for you? Here's God's suffering, suffering servant. He's a paradox. Rejected by man, but exalted by God. He's the one who died in our place and was raised for our righteousness. And he right now, right now, this very moment, intercedes for you. See, friends, what this tells you If this was the will of the Lord, it tells you that you've been on the heart and mind of God since before time began. And the moment the Savior willingly laid himself on that cross, he called out your name. Father, forgive, Dave. He knows not what he does. Father, forgive Jill. She knows not what she does. And when he said it is finished, he fulfilled all righteousness. And in his timing and by God's will, he died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he came out of that tomb. And then 40 days later, ascended to the right hand of God, where he is now thinking of you still. Just just let that Settle in your soul. Is is there no greater reason to worship? Your sins have been so far removed that the Father chooses to never bring them up again to your account. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? All because the suffering servant has come. What glorious good news. And Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to know that you 
have had us on your heart. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and giving yourself as a ransom for us. Thank you that you did not pay for our sin on credit or on layaway. You paid it in full. And thank you that you did it willingly. You knew no sin, yet you took our sin as if it was your own. And you bore it on the cross. You took our debt and you paid for it there. And it is finished. The debt has been paid because you willingly gave yourself for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. Church, tell him what a Savior he is. Thank him. Thank you for your wounds. Thank you for taking the nails. Thank you for taking the the crown of thorns. Thank you for taking the beating. Thank you for taking the wrath of God and drinking every last drop of that cup for us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you that because of your righteous life, you could not stay dead. And we are saved and declared righteous because you are declared to be the Son of God by your resurrection from the dead. And we, your people, stand in your righteousness, not our filthy rags anymore. Thank you. And we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. What a gift. Because you are a great Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.